This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, one of the most trusted stablecoins in the digital asset industry. You'll be hearing all about them later in the show. China's economic growth model has completely changed. Uh, the focus on high levels of growth completely changed. The way they treat party Congress years obviously has completely changed. And so we are going to shift to this to this slower growth going forward. And, and this has really knocked people off their feet. This is uh, this got to be like your Super Bowl, my friend. This is uh, China, China, China on every headline. I'm sure they're they're misbehaving over there. They're keeping you busy. So uh, thanks for making the time to come on the show. Uh, like I said, I'm happy to be here. It, it, it's it's fun. Doing TV is fun, but you just you throw out a sentence fragment here and you send it a, a bumper sticker here. You get you get a, a nice long conversation. You can actually dig deep into the dynamics. You can talk about some data. You can you know the, the, this is a lot more fun for me. So I I, I appreciate you uh, you hosting me here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, before we before we dive in here, and um, we've got a lot of material to cover, I'd love it if you could just give the audience a you know thirty second minute overview of what the China Beige Book is, just so they get some context for how you know what you know. Yeah. So uh, 12 years ago, um, we made the decision that getting your uh, data entirely from the Chinese government, if you're a fund, if you're a multinational corporate operating in China, uh, you're a commodities firm, it's not good enough. You know, Chinese official data have never been seen as reliable. Uh, they're certainly not gotten more reliable over time. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what we wanted to do is set up an entirely separate uh, private tracking of the Chinese economy that would give more flavor into what's happening. Uh, and even for those people out there who are still holding on to the idea that Chinese data are good enough, um, what we do is a little bit different. So we, we don't want to try to throw out a number like 6% GDP growth or a number like 51.2 for the PMI and say, you know, go figure out what that means. We put out a broad suite of metrics, uh, tens of thousands of metrics over the course of, of our of the past decade in which we track every part of the Chinese economy. We track growth, we track uh, inflation, we track the labor market, we track credit, we track shadow finance, and, and we track it not just in the big cities in China where the stories about economic growth and, 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 and Chinese governance usually emanate from. We track all the major sectors, we track uh, all the major regions, we track 37 discrete subsectors, we, tr we break it down by private firms and state firms and large mm. firms and SMEs and micro firms and, you know, every which way so that we have a real idea of not just, you know, what number represents China, but what all the separate micro stories are across the entire broad economy, because basically the Chinese economy is not a number. It is a, you know, it's a panorama of a lot of different dynamics going on. And, and that's what we try to capture. Hmm. Now, I wanted the audience to hear that from you because we've, we've kind of caveated when we've talked about China on this show that most of what you hear is through the, the lens of Western analysts, right? Uh, and I wanted the audience to hear about your business because you've actually spent the last you know, decade plus really diving deeply into the data in China. But also, I know you've spent a lot of time over there and understand some of the cultural overlays that are kind of invisible to a more Western audience. So, you know, with all of that kind of in mind, where, where I'd almost like to just start here, and I'll, I'll share my screen in a second, is if you go back and listen to a lot of the analysts over the last two years talking about their outlook for China, they have been just so dead wrong on <laughs> so many different uh, things. And not only just a little bit directionally wrong, like 180 degrees in some instances. I'd love to just maybe, you know, turn it over to you. Why do you think that's the case? What have they been wrong on? 
Well, China watching used to be very easy because mm. we knew a couple of things about uh, about how the Chinese Communist Party operates the economy. Uh, you know, you knew that they prioritized high levels of growth. You knew they wouldn't release weak data. Uh, if they did have to release weak data, then they would stimulate like crazy in order to get the numbers back up high and 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 was showing off some sort of semblance of of stability. You knew Party Congress years were going to be big years for uh, for for the stock market and for sentiment and for uh, stimulus. Uh, you, you knew all these things. The problem is this: none of them none of them are true anymore. So mm. basically, the, the the difficulty most people are having right now with the Chinese economy is realizing that. You have to unlearn all the things you thought were the were the the guideposts for understanding China for the last five, 10, 15, 20 years. And the reason this is so important is that China's economic growth model has completely changed. Uh, the stimulus playbook completely changed. Uh, the focus on high levels of growth completely changed. The way they treat party Congress years obviously has completely changed. Mm. So I, the problem has been that most people who do China have just gotten real lazy and you know, they were taught that certain things would happen in a pattern and they predicted them and they don't know what to do now that they're not seeing any of these things actually happen. And mm. you know, we have something different because we have data and we have real-time data. You know, We have quarterly data, we have monthly data, we have daily tracking data. So we're able to see what's happening and we could tell that very, very different dynamics are happening on the ground. Uh, and and we report what's happening through the data. We don't have a thesis about the economy that we just hold to, no matter no matter what happens in the real economy. You know, we track the data. We report on what happens based on that data. Mm. Now, maybe let's talk a little bit about the kind of economic and growth model. You mentioned that completely changing. And in the past, uh, maybe analysts who were just looking in. You, you could pretty much basically count on big stimulus around a party Congress here. Unlike the US, I know you have much more detail on this than I do, but that goes every five years or so. And it's kind of the same thing in the US. There's there is an old trading strategy. You heard some of the old guys like Stanley Druckenmiller talk about this. You want to buy a year before an election and sell the year after, right? Because the guy who's going in is going to promise all of these things and stimulus and all this kind of stuff. And then reality kind of sets in and oh, we're, we're not getting a lot of that. So I'm assuming it was kind of a similar dynamic in China, right? The CCP is trying to, they unlike the US, it's the CCP that's constantly in power. They want to, uh, you know, the party Congress is where some of those shakeups occur. They want the people to be largely happy, right, with uh, with their current leadership. So why has that stimulus pattern changed? Uh, and then maybe if we can segue that into how the growth model and the economic model of China is changing uh, in, a, in a larger sense. Yeah, the interesting point there is that Western observers of China assume that was going to happen. They assume that you would never have Xi Jinping usher, you know, usher his people into a party Congress year, you know, very politically sensitive year, and not give him give them great news. Mm. So everyone I was of the mindset that none of the data said this. Anecdotally, nothing on the ground was suggesting this. Now, there was no evidence in the upper, uh, you know, in the leadership of the party that there were big things changing in terms of, you know, how, how they would treat the economy in, in, in 2022, for instance. But Western observers went back to their old stale playbook and decided, you know what, we think that he's going to promise a lot. We think he's going to deliver a lot. It doesn't matter what the data say. Go all in the Chinese stocks, double down again, uh, expect stimulus. 
expect a you know a pullback of regulatory crackdowns you know pull you know expect a, a, a major stock stock rally uh, expect a you know sharply recovering growth uh, none of those happened none of none of those happened and so all these predictions were done again no data supported it no evidence the ground supported it it's just there were people who were used to making predictions based on the way things used to work and mm. so all of these things have been like you said 180 degrees wrong what actually mm. happened is that as the economy shifting uh from this economic growth model that prioritized high levels of growth as a as a way of signaling competence uh, of the economic leadership uh that shifted you're seeing the property sector uh, essentially being taken off the map you know the mm. reckless credit expansion that's gone into, into the property sector has gone away the way that this used to work of course was that China would grow some number organically. Let's say it's 4% a particular quarter, but mm. they would be predicting 7% growth and you always hit your target, you know, traditionally if, if, if you're the Chinese Communist Party. So what you do is, you know, you, 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 you push credit into the property sector, you build a bunch of things and you end up with the number that you wanted. Uh, so property, uh, the sector property and infrastructure spending played this enormously important role in Chinese growth. Uh, for years and years and years and years. Mm. And what people were surprised by is that starting in, in, in 2021, uh, the property sector was not given this huge amounts of credit it usually was. You know, the regulatory crackdown uh, pushed deep into property. Uh, the leadership decided that it was important to diminish the role of property in the Chinese growth model because not doing so was creating vulnerabilities for the party and for the government in mm. that they just keep funneling endless amounts of capital in there, more good money, good money after bad. And what you were doing is, is who knows how long this could last, maybe in a year, maybe five years. But it was very, becoming very clear that it was a vulnerability for the party to continue mm. this model because at some point it was going to stop. You're creating zombie firms, you're creating uh, you know, an economy of non-profitability. And so in 2021, they made big changes, and that culminated to some degree in the Evergrande crisis last fall. But but the big things were really happening behind the scenes. Property was being taken out as a growth driver, and, and mm. that's part and parcel of this new economic growth model, which is saying we're not going to try to hit these high levels of growth. It's not po possible anymore, at least for, for much longer. And even if it is possible, what we're giving up to get it is not worth it. And so yeah. we are going to shift to this to this slower growth going forward. And, and this is really not people off their feet. Now, Leila, let me just make sure that I understand uh, 100% what you're talking about. So uh, for those of you who are following along on video, we're looking at uh, corporate borrowing as a percentage of firms in China. Mm -hmm. right? You can see kind of starting in 2017, Q1 of 2017, it's been a pretty steady march up until Q4 of 2019, where you've seen a sharp decrease. I suppose one of the big things that you might miss if you're a Western analyst or investor looking at this, if this was a chart of US corporate borrowing, you'd be saying something to the effect of, oh, there are market forces that are acting. And for whatever reason, either companies don't want to borrow, banks don't want to lend, right? Maybe it's uh, you know risk of defaults. Maybe banks don't think they have good deals to underwrite. Maybe it's inflation risk. Whatever it is, you would ascribe market forces right to that creation and contraction of credit. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we have the central bank, but largely it's market forces. In China, what I'm hearing you say is that when you see a contraction of credit or firms that, are, uh, that want to borrow, that is not a market force. That is the CCP saying, we want less credit acting in the system. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's how it started. And uh, what, what clearly 
the the reason you see a peak and then and then you, you see the downside of a cliff is that uh, the government made a decision that it was not going to be pumping credit into the economy uh, the way it used to. And you know we saw that in our data months and months and months before before the Evergrande crisis because what we were seeing is is loan rejection. So we don't we don't just track borrowing. We track who's applying for loans, who's getting rejected for loans, who doesn't apply but actually wants to, which is a pent up demand gauge. Uh, you know what what you know what the interest rates they're borrowing at. Are they issuing bonds? Are they borrowing for the banking se- traditional banking sector or the shadow banking sector, et cetera. Uh, what we were seeing is the government just put the clamp down on mm. on property firms borrowing in the traditional banking system. And so we were seeing loan rejections fly through the roof, not just for one month or two months, but for two quarters in a row before the Evergrande crisis. Mm. So it was clearly the government saying enough is enough. These firms were reporting not being able to access credit in the banking system and having to fly over into the shadow banking system where they were paying a lot more for the capital. And it was, it was, it was a, a very obvious sign of distress. A lot of people think that, you know, registering the number of defaults in a sector is, is the way of, of tracking distress. Not true because the, the number of defaults is a political, politically orchestrated uh, number. The way to track distress in a sector is by to, to watch its capital raising and mm. capital raising just collapsed in terms of firms being able to access through the traditional uh, banking system. Uh, and and it was very clear what the government was was saying, no mas, no more. We're not doing this. You know, f- f- we're, we're not going to keep feeding, feeding the beast and, and, and creating a bigger problem. Um, now, eventually what happened was is this as the economy slowed. And as people got the idea of what was happening with property and that property wasn't this, this you know, eternally appreciating asset, um, you know, the way they, we had, everyone in China was expecting it, um, you know, 70% of, of, of or something like 60 to 70% of Chinese household wealth was invested in property for years and years and years because it was supposed to be the safe asset. And when, when people got the memo, hey, this is not happening, it changed the mindset of firms. And so what you start seeing as the uh, towards the bottom of the of the of those uh, those very low bo- uh, borrowing numbers is that eventually not only was the government uh, providing less supply of credit, but firms were wanting to borrow less. So loan demand started to collapse because they saw it was happening. Firms looked at the economic uncertainty going forward and the provision of credit may not be there. And how, what was that going to do to their, their markets? And what was that going to do in terms of their, their plans for investing and borrowing? And so firms started shutting down in terms of, uh, in terms of their activity. And so mm-hmm. you saw first the government send the message through collapsing credit supply. Uh, but eventually you saw firms respond in addition to that with collapsing loan demand. And, and that's where we have been for, for the last, you know, nine, 12 months. Um, very, very low credit seeping through the system mm. from both directions. Mm. Now, let me see if I can sort of trace a narrative here and maybe sum up some of what we've talked about thus far. Basically, one, one of the differences in between a, a dual party system, right, versus what you have over in China with the CCP, which looks a little bit more like an autocracy, but certainly there's just one political party and it doesn't change hands is, you know, in, in the US, right, if a political party doesn't perform, you know, tough luck at, at midterms, the next election cycle, you're likely going to have to change hands. The CCP, that's not really the case. So what they have to do is continuously demonstrate, right, through some sort of implicit social contract, their value to the Chinese people. For a long time, the way that they've done that is this crazy rate of growth, right, uh, which looks really good on the economic numbers that they output. But we know that that's largely fueled by debt. 
right? What I, what I kind of hear you saying is that, you know, sometime around maybe 2019, uh, based on this chart, the Chinese government has started to say, you know what, the risks of this excessive debt-fueled growth, right, especially in the property sector, have outweighed keeping that promise of this crazy rate of growth to our citizenry, right? So they're, they're starting to withdraw uh, credit. Uh, from especially the housing sector, but other sectors of the Chinese economy as well. Is that an accurate summation of, of what's going on? And if they are taking away that promise of that high growth rate, what are they going to replace it with? <laughs> yeah, that was very well put. Thank uh, you. That's exactly what's going on. Uh, so look, at the social compact, I'm glad you brought that up because that was the social compact. When you have a one-party state, uh, they're essentially saying, okay, Chinese people, we will provide you, you know, you provide us with your support and you don't do anything silly on the margins and saying that, you know, we shouldn't be your rulers. Mm. And in return, we will deliver X, Y, and Z. And what X, Y, and Z have traditionally been was a promise for high levels of growth and to make everyone rich. And what the social compact has, has seen over the past, uh, past several years has been total, total reordering of it. So you, you, you have a different social compact that the party's offering now. And, and what Beijing's saying is, uh, we're not going to uh, deliver high levels of growth. We're going to deliver slower, healthier growth. We are going to make China stronger from within. And, you know, we notice all this wealth inequality. We're not just going to make China richer. We're going to diffuse the, the, the prosperity more broadly, which is obviously the, you know, the origins of the Common Prosperity Program. So the social compact has absolutely changed. And when mm. you look at it in line with the economic data, you see what's happening. You see that there's a, there's a, there's a recognition that the growth model is at an end, that they have to shift course, uh, that the, the, the idea of, of, uh, of this unbridled capitalism, which was making certain people very rich, but keeping you know, most people in China uh, growing at a much lower rate. Well, look, if the economy is slowing down, that's, that becomes a political problem. So they're saying, mm. look, we're, we're going to make sure that people broadly are taking care of, and we're not going to just be making individual people rich here and there. So you are seeing a wholesale change in the social compact. And I think that missing this has been a major problem for people because there's this temptation and there has been this temptation for the past two years to see everything that happened since COVID started as an anomaly. So this aberration. So mm. they were dealing with COVID and then maybe Xi Jinping was, was, uh, trialing some of his approaches, or they wanted to do some big moves before the party Congress, she would solidify control. And then we'd go back to normal. You know, we'd go back to the old way of doing things, the old economic growth model, the old way of governing. Um, that's not happening. That's not going to happen. And you, the, all the Wall Street analysis for the past three years has been based on the idea that, you know, everything that's happening in, in this, in this window is, is, is an aberration and that it's just a matter of time until Xi Jinping hits his pain threshold, or it was just a matter of time until we had the party Congress and the politics solidified around Xi, and then he could go back to his old ways. Uh, all of this was wrong. So what we have to be looking at going forward is a Chinese economy that's slowing down precipitously. Uh, structurally, there is a long-term slowdown, and it's not a tenth of a percentage point here and a tenth of a percentage point of GDP here. It is a much more significant slowdown going forward, and, and that's the trajectory of the economy. Um, there's no aberration. That's the new China. Mm. Now, uh, 
Walk me through what the implications of that are. The way I had always thought about China's place in the world economy and what citizens, you know, global citizens, right, citizens of America or Europe or whatever could take away from from what China was doing is it's it's the world's factory, right? It's kind of the leading indicator. It's where most of the stuff is is made. So these leading economic indicators over in China, they would typically kind of, uh, you know, flow through more global, uh, you know, economies in, let, let's say, the United States, for instance. Is that still going to be the case? If we have growth that is slowing down in China, are they going to be the forward-looking economic indicator that they've been in the past? Yeah, look, they, they've never been the forward-looking indicator. I think that's what people have mm-hmm. gotten things wrong. I do agree that China's been the factory of the world, uh, much less so uh, over the course of the past, you know, uh, five, 10 years, but but certainly they are the factory of the world. They, they produce a lot. They have gotten through the last three years almost exclusively on the back of, of more output and more exports. So China has been and still is, you know, the factory of the world to some degree. But the real mistake that economists make, and this is sort of inexcusable because as an mm-hmm. economist, people should know better. Uh, it's not, it doesn't drive global growth. It's not a consumption center. Now, if you look at exports, you look at imports, you look at any of the consumption data inside China, China's not consuming and driving mm. world growth. China's exporting. China's draining demand from the rest of the world through subsidized prices, through, 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 through other means. Um, you know, it, the United States economy is driving global growth because it's the consumption center of the universe. So that's what's actually driving things. When, when, when you see an economist come up with the statement that, you know, China's glo- glo- growth is slowing down and so that's going to have, have an effect six months down the line on, on the United States, that's really not how it works. It's actually backwards. China, China is dependent on exports. It's mm-hmm. got very weak domestic consumption. As a result, um, it, is, it is stealing demand uh, from the rest of the world and, and that's how it's been able to, to hit its economic performance. That's going to become much harder going forward because of uh, the fact that the manufacturing model has has sort of hit a you know hit hit a uh, hit a peak to some degree, uh, mm. it's, it's getting can be difficult because of geopolitical tensions. Um, people are looking at the trade surplus and and saying, "Wow, you know, China sure is sending us a lot of stuff. They're not buying as much of our stuff. This is a political problem." So. You've got all these these issues. You know, COVID also made this uh, this this trend uh, exacerbated this trend quite considerably. So all these things that have helped China a- along the way for years and years have either hit a peak or are reversing at this point. So I wouldn't look at China as a leading indicator. I would look at China as as uh, susceptible to the problems that are now. Uh, percolating around the world, global recession, global trading recession, et cetera. And, and th- these things are going to hit China much harder than everybody else. I speak to a lot of companies in both crypto and traditional finance. And as it turns out, they share a common problem. They need a one-stop shop for treasury management and fast international payments around the globe. Circle's USDC is one of the most trusted and widely used stablecoins in the industry. At the time of this recording, USDC has 50 billion in circulation, one and a half million users worldwide, and is settling more than $5 trillion. That's trillion with a T worth of value. USDC has quickly become one of the easiest ways to move your money around the globe. On top of all that, Circle is building products for companies and institutions that want to adopt this technology. That means payment transactions, fraud management tools, digital asset custody, and a whole other suite of services. Here's one of my other favorite parts about Circle. They post monthly audits of their reserves, which means that I don't have to trust. I can verify that my money is safe, transparent, in a compliant manner 
helps me sleep easy at night, you know? As a seamless trusted digital dollar, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the entire global financial system. And you know what? Don't trust me, you can verify. Check out their recently published Transparency Hub on the website. It's a great update to Circle's content in USDC, outlines everything from USDC weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, and blog posts written by their exec team. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, back to the show. Mm, very interesting. You brought up COVID there as well. And I want to dig into that because China's very famously had an extremely strict zero COVID policy, right? Where the rest of the world has kind of made some sort of peace with, you know, vaccines and, and other sorts of policies. China has really, really kept at it with uh, locking everything down. Um, I wonder, you know, the what we've kind of teased on this show, and I've sort of heard this anecdotally from some folks over in China, but again, want to put my hand up and say I'm not an expert on this, so I want to run it by you, is that that was actually one of the, you know, where the CCP kind of held up their flag and said, hey, we've handled COVID much better than the West. Our approach has been been much more successful than the Western approach of this, whatever we had going on over here, you know, 18 or some months ago. Is that is that the reason why there's been such a strict zero COVID approach? Because it's this promise that the CCP made and how it was uh, supposed to be indicative of how the CCP is more competent than Western governments or what's going on with the whole zero COVID over in China? There was a great argument that in 2020 and 2021, that the Chinese government handled COVID better than just about anybody else, yep. that there was a firm justification for that iteration of the COVID zero policy. And, you know, it, China didn't have the deaths that everybody else did. And it had a slowdown, but it also got back up pretty quickly. And so if, if we took 2022 off the, the chart and just talked about the previous two years, I think that the leadership would have a, a claim to have to have handled COVID zero, uh, you know, as well or better than, than anybody, uh, at least, you know, a, a reasonable claim to, yeah. to, to say that. They can't do that with 2022 because what, what happened was some sort of... Uh, it's really, it's really hard to know what's in Xi Jinping's mind, but clearly he decided that this is the way things are going to go, either because uh, it's been such a success and none of my advisors are telling me different, or this is a way of, of, of testing control and, and uh, who knows? Maybe the fear of having a health crisis in the run-up to the party congress uh, was overwhelming for whatever reason. Uh, the authorities doubled down on COVID zero in a way that has absolutely crushed their economy. Um, mm. You know, we've been talking about China's structural slowdown, and that's true, and it's going to be going forward true, and, and that's sort of the new China. But the cyclical slowdown has been remarkable because it's been COVID zero lockdowns, essentially crushing demand across the entire economy for month after month after month after month after month in 2022. Um, there was an expectation back in the spring um, People were just people just got this really, really wrong. China watchers got this really wrong. You know, when we saw the economy starting to go down into lockdowns, and particularly Shanghai back in back in late March, uh, there was this expectation, all right, well, they're gonna do something for two weeks and then they're gonna you know, get back up, and then it looked like four weeks, and then the situation sort of exploded and, and got worse and worse. But as bad as the second quarter was. And the fact that they were in, you know, they reported a slight bit of growth, but the, our data showed they were they were in contraction in the second quarter. Uh, for as bad as that was, the expectation by most investors was, all right, well, they'll take care of this. And then when they're done with the lockdowns, then brown, uh, growth will bounce right back up. And we'll see, we'll, we'll see a great second half of, of the year economy because this was just sort of a, a blip. Uh, it didn't happen. Uh, and as a matter of fact, not only did it not happen, 
things have just gotten worse and worse and worse since then. You know, when we looked at our data in June and everyone was expecting this big bounce back, we, we, we were pretty surprised that there was no meaningful bounce back at all. I mean, even mm-hmm. off an economy that was in lockdown. And then our July data, which came out about two weeks before, before the equivalent market, uh, public market data, uh, showed that July got worse from June. And the second that happened, we had red alerts going out uh, all over the place to clients, to policymakers, to our central bank friends and saying, look, something huge is happening. There is no July rebound narrative. As a matter of fact, things got worse in July. And the reason for this, when we when we looked in our data, was that firms and not some firms, but we're talking about thousands and thousands of firms were telling us a singular message, which was until COVID zero is past us until it's ended, until we don't have to worry about the potential to be shoved in a quarantine tomorrow or have our businesses locked down a week from now. Until that's over, we're not going to borrow, we're not going to invest, and we're not going to hire. And that's it. And you couldn't tell that to certain China watchers who said, no, 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 they're going to stimulate. Leaving aside, how do you stimulate an economy that's that, that's in this gloom and, it, and it's locked down on and off uh, you know, every other week? Um, nothing got better. Everything got worse. And firms are locked in this pattern. They are still telling us they are not going to borrow. They're not going to invest. They're not going to hire until COVID zero is past us. And so this this is a, a really big point because, you know, the cyclical aspect of COVID zero has absolutely crushed China in 2022. To get back to your original question, you know, the argument that there was competency in 2020 and 21 has been you know thrown out the thrown out the door in 2022 because the the effect of covid zero lockdowns on the economy on small and medium sized businesses um on in the investment environment on 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 basically all economic activity it's been catastrophic and mm-hmm. and so i think 2022 will be looked back years from now as as a as a a real seminal year in, in, in Chinese decision-making, um, it just big things are happening and none of them are good on the ground. Yeah. Now I, I want to, um, you know, you mentioned Xi's name there and we're talking about decision-making, you know, I, I'd love to get a sense where come, I, I know, um, you know, maybe it's been almost a little overhyped, right. And everything in the media, but we are coming off the back of the, the 20th national party Congress. Right. And that, that again happens every five years. She, uh, Jinping is taking an unprecedented third term, right? And he stacked the the uh, Politburo Standing Committee with a whole bunch of loyalists. And the general interpretation of this has been, you know, he's pushing aside all all potential dissenting members. And there was really a pretty successful power grab that I think a lot of analysts kind of expected. So maybe it's not a big surprise, but an enormous kind of unprecedented power grab in China. I, I guess, you know, my question to you at this point is, is how should more casual viewers who, who might not be as familiar with Chinese politics, is she, you know, sort of the de facto dictator for life at this point? You know, how much power does he really control within the Chinese economy and political system? Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he, he controls everything. And, and, and the party Congress cemented that. He put in all his guys on the popular standing committee. The, the, the party Congress, it happens twice a decade. You know, you're supposed to turn over the leadership every five years. I mean, the, the top leader goes every 10 years, but then you, you sort of name the heir apparent in the five-year interim. Uh, all that has been thrown thrown out the door. There's there's no obvious heir apparent yet. Uh, she is, is there for another five-year term, but very unlikely he's ever going to unseat himself uh, organically. So yeah, this is this is she for life. This is she economics for life. This is she uh, politics and 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 social theory for life. And so this is the new norm. 
but you know, as, as important as the party Congress was, you know, this seminal event um, once every five years, you know, we didn't write a single client note about it for the mm. simple fact that this is exactly what we've been saying for the last year. And we've been screaming <laughs> into the wind. Yeah. This is not this, you know, what we talked about at the beginning. This is not a two-year window of testing out and then things go back to normal. This is she solidifying power. This is the new China. This is the new, the, the, the new way the economy runs. This is the new business environment for China. This is the new mindset on, 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 on the social economic interactions. The commercial environment, the new stimulus playbook. This is this is China, and so what happened at the Party Congress essentially cemented in the fact that nothing's changing. There's no pivot point coming. This is the new China, and I think that one of the reasons you've seen markets just absolutely implode over over recent days has been there's been a, a promise by China bulls, and almost all of these China bulls are people who are deeply invested in China and, and are talking their book. They're not looking at data. They're not making objective observations. You know, they need China things to work out well so they can get richer. Uh, these guys have told you for the last year, data be damned, tea leaves be damned, that the party Congress was going to be this great pivot point. And then afterwards, we return to some semblance of normalcy, you know, a, a more growth-friendly environment, more business-friendly environment, more stimulus-friendly environment. None of that happened. None of that's going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, this is, this, this is, this is why markets have, have, have finally, to some degree, surrendered and said, okay, well, you promised big things would happen in the party Congress. The exact opposite happened. And now I think we have to face reality. Yeah. How, how significant is if, if you're following along again via video, you're looking at this was the, the Monday sell off that happened in, in Hong Kong stocks, right? The Hang Seng Index, it was down almost 7% on the day. This is actually the worst, the worst opening, I'm pretty sure, since 2008, 2009, right? The great financial, the global financial crisis. The Chinese yuan uh, was actually trading at a 14 year low against the dollar as well. So global investors, you know, pretty sending a pretty strong message, I would say. And again, you know, uh, Chinese stocks that are that are listed over in the US, they took a tumble, right? They gapped down basically at the open. There's a whole bunch of different things that we could show here. So foreign investors selling Chinese A shares, which you're seeing at the left, it's the highest level of selling since 2017. The HSCI is trading at the lowest level versus the S&P since 2001. You know, the markets reacted extremely negatively uh, to this to this information. Do you Shocking. think this is going to be a sustained? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm, guess, I'm guessing you have an opinion, but is this going to be a sustained reaction? Should we be expecting Chinese equities to go lower? All right. Well, so look, the, the, the original call that, that there was going to be this pivot point was a terrible one. I mean, Go yeah. Goldman made a public call to go long China the week before this happened. So <laughs> good luck if you're a Goldman client listening yep. to their China team. Uh, so so you had that. Now, you know, JP Morgan, a bunch of other places are, have, have said seven times this year, go in, go all in. I don't know how you go all in if you lose all your money each time, but you go all in, <laughs> double down, double down. And then and, there, and again, this week, go all in. Chinese equities are going to rebound. Chinese sentiment's going to improve. Stimulus is coming. Stim Look, I think the first thing you have to understand is not one of these shops are doing anything but guessing. There's very smart people on the sell side. Uh, some of them are constrained by their leadership who are saying you can't be mean to China because we're trying to get a securities venture over there. We're trying to get wealth management business over there. We're trying to get underwriting, uh, you know, underwriting jobs over there. So don't be mean to China. So some of the research and some of the, the trading guidance is 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 stunted by the fact that that 
some of these shops are compromised, just outright compromised. But there's a bigger problem in that there's this big go long uh, bias and that there's this desire by certain analysts to be to be the one that calls huge pivot points. And because of that, you've got this incredibly um, You've got, an, you've got a lot of commentary that's completely lacking in integrity because it's based mm. on absolutely nothing than pure guesswork where the analyst hopes that they're going to call pivot point and they're going to get famous off of it or their shop is going to. Um, every one of these things has been wrong. And that's what mm. you've been seeing all through 2022. There is no data supporting the stimulus narrative. There's no data supporting the economic rebound narrative. There has been no data or anything else supporting the stock market rally idea. So this has been nonsense up to now. Mm. So to answer your question, wait, so let me answer your question, because I don't want to say things are going to go down forever. There is a chance, you know, that that we see the national team start to buy. You know, uh, there are such things as bottoms and dead cat balances and other things. Look, you you can you can trade China and and make money based on the fact that things go down and things go up. So maybe things get better. And quite frankly, if we talked about the trajectory when they roll back COVID zero, there's an enormous trading opportunity there because when markets get what they think is information that COVID zero is about to be ending or that they're about to announce that COVID zero is ending. I'm not talking about actual ending, but just the uh, the announcement months before the actual implementation. You're going to see a major rally in China stocks. Anything related to China is going to go up. Sentiment's going to improve. So this is not to say that equities are just going to go down and down and down. They're not going to. Mm. But the, the important thing here is if you're making a call about a pivot point, you should have actionable information you should have data. If you don't have data, you should have a really good reason why you're flipping on this stuff. Almost none of these guys do. Even the smart ones are constrained with the with with the you know the way that the Wall Street shops operate on the street. They they are in there to make their bank money, not to to be smart guiders for for investors. And so, follow the evidence, follow the data. Uh, there will be ups and downs, including ups. There will be ups in the Chinese stock market in the future. When COVID zero is announced, there's going to be a big up. But don't just go in because of this ridiculous, ridiculous argument that valuations are too low. To say that things are divorced from the fundamentals is a stupid thing to say for the simple <laughs> fact that there are no fundamentals in China. The fundamentals are based off not the balance sheet for any particular company. They're based on what the policy environment is for the government. And if you don't understand the policy environment for the government or you're guessing on it, you're going to get wrong no matter what the valuations are. are. If they look low to you, that's not a reason to buy. If the policy environment's improving, that's a reason to buy. So that's, that's what you should be looking at. We have a monetary stimulus gauge that tracks pivot points in credit. We have a fiscal stimulus gauge, which we're building right now, which will track pivots in infrastructure spending and commodity spending and, and things like that. If those are registering positive, go all in. Do what you want, but if, if but don't go in on a guess. Mm. So let me, Lila, maybe we could zoom out here. I'd love to get your your thoughts on this whole power struggle. I know we talked about this in our last interview a little bit too, between the U.S. and China, because everything you've been hearing, right? It's very popular to say nowadays in the U.S. There's this that kind of Thucydides trap notion, right? Which is the one empire that's ascending and the other empire that's descending, and they always kind of come into come into conflict. What I'm hearing you say, to be totally honest, doesn't necessarily sound super bullish, right? If the investing environment in China is not necessarily determined by multiples or valuation, but instead it's determined by the political environment, what I'm hearing you say is that you know she has unrestrained power, right? He sits at the top of everything, and what he's decided is we're not going to create credit, we not we're not going to continue this this growth at all costs uh, at all cost trend, and instead we're going to be worried about you know 
equalizing, right? Eliminating some of this wealth income inequality. Um, but it doesn't, it, you know, there's, it seems like there's kind of collapsing growth there, not necessarily this continued crazy growth pattern. A lot of what I'm hearing you say doesn't necessarily sound extremely bullish for the future of China. Walk me through how you see the, you know, the Chinese economy and people changing on the world stage, maybe compared to the US over the next 20 or 30 years. 20 or 30 years. Wow. Okay. So, um, or whatever, whatever time frame you feel is appropriate to answer that that question. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot. I'll take a stab at it. So, um, for a long time, the idea has been that China's economy is going to grow like mad because they had an economic growth model that prioritized high levels of growth. You are not going to see those high levels of growth going forward because, uh, yes, growth's organically slowing down, but they're also deprioritizing uh, high levels of growth. So that means the party's not going to be not going to be running the, sh the ship the same way as it has for a long time. Uh, you will still see opportunities to make money in China. You know, people will still go in there and make a lot of money. It, the, the, the key is that it, it's different. It's a different environment. Before, people would go in and, and they would say, look, there's, a, there's this tech firm or that tech firm. And you know, the Chinese government's put a moat around it, not letting other foreign companies in and, and, and it's boosting this. This is a set it and forget it investment play. And so you know, we're going to just gonna go put money in Alibaba, put money in a 10 cent, and then we'll check our quarterly profits and, and, and what could go wrong. You know, things don't work that way anymore. There will be opportunities to invest, whether it's advanced manufacturing, uh, whether it's with the green economy, there'll, there'll, people will make money in China. You know, there's, there, there will be great fortunes made in China still. Uh, it just, it's just not the same environment as it was before. So the upside is capped in terms of people going in and the idea that you can go in and just sort of, you know, not have a China team, not have China data, not have an understanding of what's going on in China and just expect to do well because there's 1.3, 1.4 billion people. Um, that's been proven to be nonsense. So first of all, that's not the role China will play going forward. China, however, is a, a major power. It's a major power in a lot of ways. Its economy may be slowing, but it's the second largest economy in the world. Very powerful. It's a enormously powerful uh, uh, regional power. Um, it's a military power. Uh, it's an advanced technology power. And yes, there are a lot of things that the United States government and, 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 and countries around the world are doing in terms of export controls to try to stymie that uh, and, and, and have a more uh, nuanced uh, policy towards providing China all the inputs so that it can defeat the West commercially and militarily. Um, but you still, still see a, a China that's, that's powerful. And 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 a world player, and and so China's not going away. Um, and I think that the big discussion points going forward, and you've already seen this shift. At least you've seen it in Washington D.C. It's less about the economics, and it's less about trade, and it's more about advanced technology, and it's about the military angles in in the South China Sea, and particularly the Taiwan Strait. So if you're looking what's happening with advanced technology, one of the things Xi Jinping wanted to do when he got in is say, look, China has missed previous industrial revolutions. Uh, we're not going to miss this fourth industrial revolution. We're going to be at the absolute cutting edge of all the things that were enumerated in the Made in China 25 program, which has since disappeared because it became politically toxic. Um, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, robotics, 5G, biotech, et cetera. All these things, we are going to be at the forefront of, of this. We're not going to be producing widgets forever. You know, we're already shifted, shift, long ago shifted off of that. And we're going to be an advanced manufacturing powerhouse. And so that's the, both the, the, the opportunity, but also the threat that people see in China. And that's why you've moved, the United States and others have moved politically in order to 
you know, uh, ring fence the Chinese from some of these advanced technologies uh, because of fear that that they're fueling their commercial rise, but also empowering their military to be able to someday, uh, you know, defeat Americans, defeat defeat Western forces in battle, Asian mm-hmm. other Asian forces in battle. So, you know, you, you see a China that's going to be extremely important, but it's less the economic and trade side, which has been the big deal for for the last you know. 10, 20, 30, you know, 10, 20 years, um, and more the idea of, you know, where are they going to fit in in terms of advanced technology and, and, and what military threat do they potentially uh, pose towards, towards, uh, towards interests in, in the Pacific or, or globally? Mm. That's very interesting to hear you say that. I mean, I'm sure many of us have seen that graphic and maybe we can fish it up, uh, you know, to show, but it's, you know, kind of like it's a map of the globe and it's, trade partners, right? And it's kind of shown every country is shown in, in blue or red. If it, It's blue if your your major trade partner is the United States and it's red if you're China. It shows it 20 years ago versus today. And 20 years ago, it's a sea of blue, right? The US is the dominant trading partner with the world. Today, it's a sea, or, sea of red, right? And even US, many US allies, their dominant trading partner is China, which kind of calls into question then if there ever were to be conflict, do you go with your political ally or do you go the one that your trading partner. Uh, so there's there's a little bit of that there. I guess, you know, if you're saying that China, what they want to do is they want to seize this next industrial revolution. They see AI and some of these more advanced technologies as the way of doing that. You know, necessarily, does this end up being a, a contest around semiconductors, right? And what is Taiwan's, uh, you know, the what's the importance of Taiwan there? Because we, we haven't really talked about that. I'm sure you get this question a lot. But, you know, Taiwan, there's obviously a political angle. You know, she has said that he's, he's pro uh, reunification, right, of, of uh, Taiwan and China. But also we have TSMC, right, which is probably arguably the most important company when it comes to semiconductors, which are a, an enormous input, right, for all of those AI and those sort of advanced technologies. So is this desire to be at the forefront of this next industrial revolution, does that necessarily push China and Taiwan on a collision course over TSMC, among other 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 things? Uh, so... China won't invade Taiwan because of TSMC, but TSMC dramatically uh, complicates the relationship vis-a-vis the United States because for years and years and years, there has been a sort of an unofficial defense relationship called the Taiwan Relations Act uh, via the Taiwan Relations Act in which the United States had this strategic ambiguity around whether it would defend Taiwan. And this was based on legacy relationships uh, going back to post-World War II in terms of the United States relationship with the Kuomintang, who had, who had fled the Chinese Civil War into Taiwan. And, and this was the, the, you know, this was the, the, you know, while the Chinese communists had taken over the mainland and, and while the, you know, the, the Kuomintang was on, was on uh, Taiwan, you know, here's what we pledged to do to keep Taiwan safe. And China's, you know, we're going to, we're going to talk about them on, on a sort of a different plane. You know, it, it, there's been this sort of legacy historic relationship. Now there's actually a, a hardcore strategic case for defending Taiwan based around the fact that not only do we want to keep the advanced semiconductor technology, the, the, the real, the top of the pyramid, the, the TSMC does the advanced t- uh, chips in a way that no other firm in the world, not Intel, not Samsung, not anyone else can produce. Not only are we trying to keep those out of Chinese hands, but the United States can't do it itself. They can't build these things itself. So they need to continue. They need to make sure that, that uh, these advanced chips continue to flow for the economy, for the military, for other things. And so TSMC has basically created a strategic argument in addition to the legacy argument for being involved in a, in a you know, in defending Taiwan. Um, 
whether it's arming them, whether it's militarily or, or otherwise. So TSMC's made this situation more complicated, um, but you know you still have the the issue where China sees Taiwan as a renegade province. Uh, the more you see pressures on Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party in the years going forward, the more you see precipitously slowing growth, there's going to be more pressure to wag the dog, to, to do more things that, 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 that involve like, let, let's, let's not let these Taiwanese interlopers get, get, get away with, uh, with calling themselves something other than China. Uh, there'll be, there, it could shrink the window for, for an invasion or for some sort of kinetic action on Taiwan, a blockade, taking the, outdoor, taking the uh, you know, outer islands. It, it, it's very risky. Um, so TSMC is an important part of this equation. It's not the reason that there will be a battle. Um, it's not the, the sole reason for the United States to protect Taiwan, but it does complicate everything here. And, and it, it has me worried because I think going forward, you know, if you talk about Taiwan Straits five years ago, you wouldn't really be that worried that something was, was, was going to happen. Now you look towards the end of the decade and, and the risks that we're going to see some sort of confrontation um, are going up. And they're going up in a material way. So, so we're in we're in uh, we're in worrisome times right now. Mm. Do you think that the CCP and Xi specifically is looking at the conflict that's going on in Russia Ukraine and trying to basically learn from that? Right. I mean, I'm sure there's been an enormous amount of information about how the West, you know, specifically, you know, the United States would respond to some sort of incursion like this. This is kind of one of the the first land wars that's been fought in Western Europe in, in some period of time. Do you think they're looking at this as a blueprint for, oh, this is how the Western world would respond if we were to invade Taiwan? I don't think it's a blueprint for defense of Taiwan, but I do think that they're, they are paying close, close, close attention. I mean, how could they not? You know, they're, they, they, everybody, and this includes the Chinese, but it also includes me, uh, have been extremely surprised by how much there's been sort of global solidarity around the Ukrainian war effort. That's yeah. not to mean it's been it's been great, and that's not to mean that the Germans are doing everything they can or that other Europeans are doing everything they can. But the the rallying around uh, the rallying around Ukraine in terms of just extricating Russia from the global financial and global commercial systems has been remarkable. The mm -hmm. sanctions put on Russia. Um, Look, they're not they're not at a ten, but they are pretty powerful. And what the United States has done with the foreign direct product rule in terms of ring fencing Russia's technology sector, so that the Chinese and others can't support them and and provide them semiconductors, provide them avionics, it's been remarkable. So if you're Xi Jinping looking at this, you have to you have to be blown away by the fact that you know you're seeing solidarity around this that you didn't think was possible. You know, U.S. and Europeans don't. 20, you know, all these European countries don't work well together. They certainly don't work well together in a global coalition with the United States and others. To see what's been done has to be pretty, pretty remarkable. And it has to be, it has to create a lot of concern on the Chinese part that if they did anything that, that maybe the world would get its act together and, and create even more problems for China than, than it expects. But I think at this point, China will either invade China, Taiwan or it won't down the line. But I think the expectation that there won't be catastrophic consequences economically for, for China, um, I, I think it has to just assume that. Now, there could be other catastrophic consequences. If you have a kinetic war between the United States and China, you know, you, you, you have an even worse situation. I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we're talking World War III. Um, so nobody wants that to happen. And, uh, and so obviously that risk is out there too. But I think the idea, if to the extent there was any belief on the part of the, of, of, the, of the Chinese Communist Party that they could get away with some sort of you know, major action on Taiwan and the world would, would sit idly by, um, I, I think those dreams have been shattered. So it does complicate the calculus for Xi 
uh, as well. Yeah. Lilon, maybe we can just close. I'd love to know, you know, the implications for the rest of the world that this transition in China, what, what, what are the implications going to be for the rest of the world, right? Again, you know, going back, maybe it wasn't a forward-looking indicator, but definitely was, you know, I think fair to characterize China as the world's factory. Now there's maybe naturally slowing growth, but there's certainly less of a, a political emphasis on unnecessarily just growth. There's more of an emphasis on equality, right? And what that probably is going to mean is standard of living has to come up, wages have to come up, and then it's less attractive anyway, right? sans any geopolitical friction. It's There are all these kind of factors that are pointing us away from China being the, the global factory for the rest of the world. Do you agree with that? And if so, what are the implications, right? Do we see, uh, you know, different, are there other low cost producers? Uh, is there a restructuring of supply chains? What are some of the economic markets driven consequences of this changing growth model in China? I do think China is becoming less of a, uh, of a factory of the world, although it's still st still still at the top. Uh, and I do think that China has never been a consumption engine for the world in, a, in, in the way that people have described it. So I think that's that hasn't happened. That won't happen. I think the most interesting angle that people aren't paying enough attention to is on the commodity side. Uh, you know, I was <laughs> I, I did a talk at a central bank, I think back in 2015, uh, a major commodity exporting country and basically concluded with the idea that, look, China is going to slow down precipitously in the coming years, significantly. You know, the, this, this, this particular central bank is predicting like 8% growth forever and said, look, you're going to see precipitously slowing growth going forward. And, and yet, if China does what it needs to do, it will end up okay on the other side. It will use this opportunity to restructure its economy. It'll have slower, healthier growth, et cetera, et cetera. Let me tell you who's going to get screwed by this. It'll be you. And I was telling the central bank this. I said, look, you're one of the many economies around the world that has not taken this opportunity to diversify away from just feeding the, the Chinese commodities infrastructure growth engine. Uh, that will not be there for that much longer. And if you're not taking this opportunity, you're going to be in real trouble down the road. Mm. Uh, now, they basically kicked me out of there. They weren't even very friendly at all. Um, <laughs> they certainly didn't listen to a word I said. And I haven't been invited back. Uh, so, um, so maybe the message wasn't received, but it should be received by now. I think that going forward, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons. This is funny. I have this debate all the time. I'm constantly being asked, you know, what about this commodity super cycle going forward? What, you know, is there going to be one? There is not going to be a commodity super cycle going forward. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a great trade around commodities for a bunch of years. Because look what's going on in monetary policy. You know, you could you could you know you have enormous shortages right now uh, because of broken supply chains and other dynamics. And so you may have this wonderful trade where lots and lots of people are going to get rich investing commodities the coming years. But there's not going to be a commodity super cycle because definitionally you cannot have a commodity super cycle without a foundational source of demand. And that foundational source of demand no longer exists. And it most certainly is not China going forward. So I think one of the things that people have gotten very wrong is the idea that we're in some sort of window. I mean, now it's the COVID window, but other times it's the slowing growth window or we're having a recession and then things are going to go back to the way they were or China was going to go back to the way they were uh, you know, before, um, you know, before 2015. Uh, it's not going to happen. And so I think that the real risk here is that people have, have just literally assumed China is going to become this power that just keeps doing the same thing to the end of the century. And that's why you're going to see the Chinese century. But that's not what's happening. It's becoming pretty obvious that's not what's happening. Uh, there's enormous challenges on the Chinese economy right now. And we haven't even spent much time talking about debt. We haven't even mentioned demographics. And so you've got enormous challenges for the Chinese leadership going forward. And 
if you're relying on Chinese growth to, to, to fuel you, you think that's going to be your growth center, your commodity, it's not going to be. So um, there will be enormous dislocations from the recognition as this played out. I hope it's being recognized now, but I'm not sure I see it. Um, and so, uh, look, going forward, China is going to play a very different role in, in the global economy. Uh, it's going to still be extremely important, but it's just not going to be what everyone thought it was five, 10 years ago. And so until this recognition is, is, is forces change on a lot of these, these, these countries that have been exporting commodities as their, as, as their big profit maker to China for years and years, until this recognition hits, hits people. Um, you have the potential for a much greater fall as sort of a domino effect as this recognition hits the coming years. Yeah. Uh, the, the debt and demographic story is pretty well-worn and we talked about it last time, so I didn't want to hit on it, but you know, it's so tempting. I actually would love to hear the, the steel man on the other side of this, but it is so tempting to look at the world through the lens of demographics, right? Because when you think about GDP growth, it really, you know, it comes from two different Two, there are two components to that, right? Which is the amount of production per unit, and then there's the number of units, which is people, right? So if all if all else fails, right? If you have a halving of your demographics, then everyone needs to be twice productive. And certainly the the demographics bomb in China, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know about it, but you know, that one that one child policy that the CCP had in place for that number of years just wreaked havoc on their demographics. And you know, I, the estimates that I heard that you certainly know probably better than me, is that they're working, the the people that are, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on the word, but the working age demographics, right? It's going to get cut in half by 2050, which is, that's a staggering, that's a very difficult problem for the CCP to make up. I I do not envy trying to solve that problem. I'm not going to lie. Well, uh, most of these problems, the ship sailed. In the coming years, you're going to see, you know, I get asked all the time, what, what can be invested in? What, you know, what's going to go big in China? Well, one thing that's going to be big is that they are going to do everything humanly possible in order to encourage, incentivize, and subsidize childbirth and and uh, and and more huh. you know more more population. So you're going to see in the coming years you're going to see an enormous push to do more of that. Um, but but look, the one child policy did wreak havoc. You can't you can't reverse that at this point. So you've got a demographic problem on population overall. You've got a demographic problem in terms of working age population may have peaked already. You have a demographic problem with male-female imbalance. You have a demographic problem with you know one child supporting two parents and four grandparents. And how are you going to spend if you're, all your money is going into buying you know granny a cane? And, uh, and and grandpa, you know, a, a, a nursing home apartment. So look, these are these are huge. The world has a demographics problem. It's not just China, but yeah. the problems in China are particularly bad uh, because uh, they're more severe. And also, China got old before it got rich. You know, unlike Japan, Japan's old, but Japan got rich before it got old. A lot of the Asian economies that are you know these roaring tigers of the, of the last you know several decades, uh, they got rich before they got old. China's not rich and China's getting old and you're going to see enormous headaches from that in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. Hmm. All right, Leland, you've been extremely generous with your time. I know you gave a, an overview of the China Beige Book in the beginning of the episode, but if, if viewers want to find out more about the services you provide, follow you, get more information, what's the best way to do that? Well, it's I, Twitter. Twitter is sort of our, uh, you know, our, our doorway to the world. So at China Beige Book, you know, we put out a lot of provocative commentary on Twitter. Uh, we have a LinkedIn page uh, too. 
Um, we have a website which has documented every call, every major call we've made, every single media interview we've done, which is in the thousands since we started. Uh, so there's a lot of information on the website and, and there's some ways to, to, to write in if you're interested. But, uh, but start with Twitter and, and, and see what we're saying and, and see if you agree. Excellent. Thanks, Leland. We'll have to bring you on again soon. This has been fun. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. Cheers.